This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing, and I'm your host, J. Scott. I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field enjoying God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a really special show for you guys. We have A3 trophy hunts. We have Matt Schimberg, Jay Lopeman, and Chad Roten. And I've known all three of these guys personally for many years. And all three in their own right are fantastic hunters, uh, family men, and fantastic guides. And I've got just a, a huge respect for all three of these guys. And we're very fortunate to have the three of them on at the same time. And uh, guys, how you doing? Good. Great. Great. I'd like I'd like to um, start out by having each one of you kind of introduce yourself. Uh, tell me about your family, kids. Uh, how'd you get your start in hunting? And uh, then I'd like you to tell me one thing about yourself that maybe people don't know. Um, Matt, wh- this is Jay Lopeman. I'll start out. Um, I'm married um, to a small uh, small town girl in northern Arizona known as St. John's area, and uh, I have twin uh, 12-year-old daughters, and they do love to hunt, and one thing that people know about me that I like to do when I'm not hunting is probably golfing and CrossFit. The CrossFit and I can, I can actually attest to your golfing, Jay, uh, we originally met in high school playing golf. You were younger than me, but a heck of a golfer for sure. And Jay, how did you get your start hunting? I got my start hunting with my dad. Um, I grew up in the White Mountains. Uh, I grew up in Sholo, and my dad always took uh, me and my brother out hunting all the time and fishing, and that's where I got my start. That's awesome. Uh, how about you, Matt? Uh, my name is Matt Schimberg. I am married to my wife, Shannon. Um, we have one daughter. She will be five this coming May. Her name is Michael. I got my hunting start as well with my dad. He uh, he started me and both my brothers um, out young, you know, just the standard way people do it, small game and fishing and on up the ladder into into deer hunting and we were off and running. I, uh, awesome. one thing that I like to do in my free time that, uh, people don't probably really know. I don't get to do too much of it these days, but I hope to do more soon is, uh, train horses. I've, uh, spent a lot of my, a lot of the time and earlier in my life learning, learning how to train horses and, and team rope and, and rope. So I like horses. Awesome. Awesome. Chad, how about you? Well, uh, I uh, am married. I have a wife with three uh, great children. I have an 11-year-old daughter and and then two sons, a a 9-year-old, soon to be 10, and then a a 3-year-old. I I started hunting, uh, you know, just like a lot of us who just started off, you know, shooting rabbits. And uh, I spent a lot of time with my, my father out in the woods. Uh, as well as my brothers, I have two brothers that are very avid hunters as well. And uh, to this day, I still enjoy spending time with with them out in the woods. Um, and one 
thing that I love to do when I'm not hunting is I, I love uh, going to the lake and catching a few fish. Awesome. What kind of fish mainly do you like fishing for, Chad? You know, I haven't done it as much as I as I used to, but I love fly fishing. You know, my wife, she's from uh, New Mexico, right up there by, you know, Farmington where Quality Waters is. Uh-huh. And she always joked when we first got married that I married her for fishing, not for her. Because I, I, I spent all my time up there on the San Juan with my father-in-law and whatnot. And I love fishing rivers for trout. Um, I love float tubing, you know, sitting in a float tube in the White Mountains. Uh, bass fishing, you name it. I, I love fishing. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. So do I. And um, the San Juan, that's a beautiful place up there. Uh, for my listeners out there, obviously... Most everybody has heard of A3. Uh, these guys have come on the scene. Uh, Jay and Chad were partners, and um, Matt was uh, doing his thing. And uh, you guys, uh, tell me how it came about that you guys decided to join efforts and create A3 Trophy Hunts. Because quite honestly, from the outside looking in, you're talking about two superpowers, you know, joining and. Uh, what does A3 stand for, and you know what what came about to make you guys decide to join in those efforts? Well, we uh, <clears throat> we first became friends in the hunting industry, and uh, you know this is Matt, and I had a great deal of respect for for Jay and Chad and their abilities and their integrity, and the uh, you know as well as they had some of the best guides in the business. Um, and so we, uh, it was out of mutual respect and, uh, you know, that they were the best at what they did. And I like to align myself as closely with the best people that I can. Um, so for me, it was a no brainer. And, uh, you know, we, we, at first we started, you know, joking about it really more than anything. And then we started actually talking about it and then it became a serious discussion and, uh, you know, ultimately led to uh, saying, "Yeah, let's let's do this." What year did you guys? Uh, was it 2011? What year did you guys join up? Well, this last season was our first official season. Uh, okay. As a three was the 2014 hunting season. You know, we I guess we officially joined um, right around the first of the year of 2014, huh, guys? Correct. And. Uh, so the 2014, the whole 2014 was was the conglomerate efforts of of, of the three of you in A3. That was the first official season. Yes, yes it was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And do you guys have a specific like mission statement or company goal or or you know when you when you guys joined up? I mean, was there a common theme that other than let's just kill giant animals, or is that the common theme? You know, <laughs> that is really the common theme. At the end of the day, we're uh, we're driven to to do the best we can and 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 do the best for our clients, and that was really the common thing was try to try to harvest the best animals we could with our clients. You know, Jay, there was yeah. A, yeah, there was a time when you know before we were partners, we would get calls from from you know clients that we had guided on elk and maybe a coos deer hunt, and they'd call us and say, "I drew the Arizona Strip. Uh, where I, I want you guys to take me." And as hard as it was, Jay and I uh, never approached the Arizona Strip. We knew, and we were honest with our clients. We we told them, 
you need you should book we could go up there and have a good hunt but but you should have a great hunt and because of that you need to call matt schimberger you know and 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 he would do the same same to us he would send us elk clients you know and when i saw that integrity with him where he was he was it was okay for him to say that you know he might not be that he could provide a dang good hunt right but for the ultimate experience he would send clients our way and, and i really respected that and you know he did the same with us so right it was likewise for me yeah okay that that's awesome so a mutual respect created a, a partnership and then uh the common goal and common bond of wanting to harvest the largest animals the state of arizona could provide is is uh basically the the the, the mission statement or common goal that you guys have yes, sure. yep um, in this first season of 2014, starting out, I would assume we started out with, uh, you know, probably some deer and some elk. Uh, what were some of the most notable uh, trophies um, since the creation of your partnership? Maybe starting from the beginning, uh, tell me some of the trophies that uh, you guys have harvested. Well, the... Uh you know, they're all special, but the one that stands out the most to me was, uh, was the 13 B rifle deer hunt this year. I, uh, I hunted with a long time client of mine and a great friend that has, uh, oh, over the last two or three years, he's been battling, um, some very serious life threatening medical problems that, uh, have been a roller coaster for him up and down have, uh, you know, have sapped most of his strength and, you know, took him to the, took him right to the edge a few times over the last few years. He actually drew the strip tag in 13A. He's an Arizona resident. He drew the 13A strip tag in 2012, was too sick to be able to come and try to hunt at all. Um, Lord bless him. He drew again in 2014, 13B this time. And, uh, and he, he showed up. He's, I've hunted with him a lot in the past. He's killed several other big deer in the past. So he's, you know, he's one of those guys that doesn't like to go backwards. He always likes to go forward. So we made a plan to try to harvest the biggest deer that we could. Um, we knew it wasn't going to be easy. We, we actually, um, decided not to hunt some other really, really good deer that would have been a lot easier to harvest. And we went after, you know, one of the best ones that we knew about. Um, he was, uh, he dug, um, you know, he didn't have a lot of strength. He didn't have nearly as much strength as he did when he was healthy. And uh, between myself and some of the guides that I had helping me, um, you know, we, we carried everything that he needed to that he needed to have with him. We uh, we carried a chair for him. The uh, the buck we were hunting was very difficult to to locate at all. Um, we ended up tracking the buck. Um, you know, literally track the track all day long, most of the day anyway. We we carried all the equipment. Um, we carried a chair for him. We would uh, sit down in the shade and let him rest whenever he needed, catch his air, and then he would, you know, he was good to go. And we we uh, ultimately tracked the buck until we, uh, you know, we had a really good idea of where he probably was bedded. Um, not for sure. We we quit the track and circled around and and. Lo and behold, we got eyes on him in the draw that we thought he was in and was able to work John in there to about 240 yards and set up and, and uh, you know, waited the buck out for about an hour, 
buck stood up and, uh, you know, a one shot harvest, which is the only way he ever harvested anything is with one shot. And this was no different. Um, and we killed an absolutely gigantic fielder buck that, uh, ended up actually being the biggest buck that we've ever killed on the general hunt, um, in Arizona. So that would, you know, hands down be the highlight of 2014 for me. That's a fantastic story, Matt. Uh, how, how big was that deer and what, what did he look like? What was his configuration? Uh, the deer was a six by nine that, uh, that wound up officially SCI scoring 255 and change. He, uh, he had an enormous amount of palmated mass on his left antler, just, you know, as big as both your hands put together, just a just more mass than than any deer should be allowed to have. And was you know, he was a very old deer. The deer had on his uh his incisors on his bottom jaw he had one tooth left in his mouth and it was hanging by a tassel of skin and the tooth was actually root and all was turned sideways in his mouth. And that was the only tooth that this deer had in his in his uh of his incisors in the in the front lower jaw and he was an ancient buck that was at the end of his life that uh you know thankfully for the good you know the good precipitation that we received and he was able to hang on one more year and grow some big horns if it would have been a bad year i i doubt that deer would have you know he wouldn't have been nearly as big as he was and he he possibly wouldn't have been alive at all because he was his teeth were gone and uh you know, so it was a perfect deer to harvest. Just an ancient old warrior of a buck that wound up being really, really big. We killed him in a really, really cool manner. Um, a hunt I'll never forget for sure. That's awesome. Is that a buck like you'd been watching for many, many years, and and he just blew up, or had he been just a giant for for several years? No, it was a buck that we that we had not known about in the last couple of years. We knew about him earlier in his life. We lost track of him. He lived in a very difficult country. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, the trail cameras are fairly ineffective. Um, you know, you can't just climb up on the big peak and glass them up and go, well, there he is. You know, it's, it's just basically flat rolling, you know, thick trees. Um, you know, so no, it was, uh, you know, like, like a lot of these biggest bucks that we've killed over the years that, you know, that we don't have trail camera pictures of that we, uh, you know, we find the old fashioned way, a few of them still and, this one was no different. That's awesome. Uh, Jay and Chad, uh, any any trophies uh, that jump out at you in the 2014 season to highlight your season? Um, I would say this is Jay. I have a, I had a past uh, client um, that came out. He had hunted coos deer with us before, uh, him and his dad, um, and he'd killed a tremendous buck the first time he came out. Uh, and he came, and he, they came out on October, uh, coos deer hunts and, uh, he killed a 110 incher the first time he came and, uh, well, in between there, uh, he's, he's a young 30 year old and he had some heart issues and ended up having open heart surgery and, you know, he made it through. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do this again. And uh, he said, you know, he started feeling better. He was, they got him where he could walk on a treadmill. And he had medication that would allow him for his heart rate to get so high. 
and then it would just stop him. I mean, we would we'd get out of the truck and walk a little ways, and as soon as his heart hit a certain level, it would just it was like a governor on his heart. And uh, and so we'd we'd found a, a buck uh, scouting that I told him, hey, I think we can you know get into this area, um, you know, just take our time. And uh, we got in there, and it, as most people know, this October hunt, the deer movement was very minimal. The super warm uh, feed was tremendous, so they just didn't need to move much. And uh, we got in there, and he, you know, three days in a row, he walked in there with us, and uh, finally the buck stood up. The buck had only moved in three days. He probably only moved 40 to 50 yards in three days. And uh, he made a tremendous 600-yard shot and killed a 113-and-a-half-inch deer and with his dad, you know, right there. And uh, so I was a, that was a pretty neat deal. That's awesome. Has his health improved since then? You know, he's slowly coming along. Um, it's just something that he's got to be careful with. I mean, sure. I mean, especially at that age. Um, and uh, but you know, he says things are looking better and better. Good, good. Yeah, that that sounds like an awesome deer uh, for sure. And I know how tough those um, early hunts are. You know, it's one thing to have a buck scouted out, but sometimes, like you said, if you know the feed conditions are so well, and they they literally you could throw a blanket around the areas that a lot of times those bucks live in. And um, I'm sure it was hot on that hunt, and they just there's very little movement. So I mean, you know, they're right there on that hill. Uh, you know, and you know, you just got to find them. Yep. You know, we, we had seen that buck the evening before and, uh, I mean, we just got a split second before he bedded back down. And so we knew he was still there. And, uh, and when we found him the next day, literally he might've been 10, 15 yards from that spot. And wow. we didn't find him until I would say, it was almost uh, 11 or 12 o'clock the next day. It wow. just hadn't moved at all. And when you found him the next day, was it during his midday, sh- you know, his um, shade change? Yes. You just did, yeah. So he, yep. so you just stayed glassing and you knew he, you just kept looking in the pocket and he finally stood yeah, up. Yeah, just burned the eyeballs. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people miss out that time, you know, as soon as that yep. sun gets on them, they got to move a little bit and... You just have that split second. You got to find them. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like an awesome hunt. Uh, what about you, Chad? Did you have any uh, hunts that really jumped out at you in 2014? Yeah, I did. I had a, a couple actually. Um, the first one was my uh, my daughter, my oldest child. She just turned uh, she turned 10, and uh, so she applied in her first year ever applying. She drew a Unit 27 Youth Deer Tag. Uh-huh. And uh she put her little heart into preparing for that hunt and uh I was able to slip away and go over there and she was able, was able to watch her um just hike her little fanny off. I mean, she hiked Oh, it was about, you know, unit 27's not the easiest country to get around in especially for a tiny tiny little girl who has to step over all those all the deadfall from the fire and whatnot, but uh sure. She did about a 6-mile hike through that stuff and Walked out of there with a a nice three by four muley, and uh, you know she's I, I we got another hunter 
and she's a female and she's addicted to hunting now. So that's awesome. That, you know, that's awesome. I mean, that just, that was the pinnacle. And then I was able to share a hunt, uh, a late coos deer hunt with my, uh, with, uh, he's my adopted brother. He's a, from Mexico. He grew up with my family in high school. He came from some rough circumstances and we brought him in our home and he drew a December whitetail tag. And he, uh, he's hunted coos deer for probably 10 years. He's killed one small buck and, you know, a spike and he wanted something better. And he was able to kill a really good buck with, uh, Jay was down there with us as well. We were hunting down there and we decided to hunt after Christmas and for whatever reason the bucks still weren't going it was real hit and miss and uh, we went into a pocket that that always has some some nice deer in it and he killed a, a huge buck actually a 115 uh and he was just as shook up and excited as it gets it was awesome so who was more shook up you or him believe it or not Jay, <laughs> i actually <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually had to tell him to uh, to relax so he he uh, so he could hit the thing. Yeah. So it was fun. It, it was it was an awesome hunt. So that's cool. Sounds like uh, you know, there's nothing like hunting with family and good friends. And uh, it sounds like all of you guys' stories. Uh, you know, when I asked you about the most notable, I mean, uh, you know, obviously in Matt's case you know, hunting with a lifelong friend and shot just a giant deer. And then you guys sh shoot big coos deer and your daughter shooting a big deer. But, you know, it, it's, you know, a 400 inch elk or whatever. I mean, it's funny how the, the hunts that mean the most are the ones that you do a lot of times with old clients that, you know, have become friends and, you know, there's nothing like hunting with family. That's awesome, guys. Right. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, uh, your forecast for, let's just start out with elk so we're all on the same page. Uh, with our 2015 elk season, obviously the, the draw results will come out here in another three weeks or so. And, or, you know, maybe two weeks, who knows. Um, let's get the 2015 forecast from you guys and maybe give me a top five, top three or five units that you guys really like. And um, uh, you, any, any one of you guys can start. Um, you know, Jay, I think, uh, I think the forecast for Arizona elk this year is going to be good, if not great. Um, it's a little, little early yet, as we all know, um, March precipitation, April and May is very, very critical, you know, for antler development on the, on the top end bulls. And then the, the monsoons definitely contribute to a healthy rut, um, we, uh, we're excited. You know, this last storm we just got, uh, we've been out in the woods quite a bit. Uh, we've picked up some, some very, really good sheds already off some big bulls. And, uh, the, the green up that's already happening is, is awesome. It's been a couple years actually since I've seen the, the moisture this saturated and green. So. And Chad, before you go on, I want to double back with something you said there and, and the other guys, you guys chime in too. I'm of the notion with, uh, with our Arizona elk in that it's not as necessary to have an extremely big snowpack in the winter as much as it is to have wet springs 
and and going into when they're dropping their antlers and 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 early uh, spring greenups. Tell me if you guys agree with that as far as I think you can have just an average winter but have the timing of the storms in the spring at exactly the right times, which is, you know, late February, mid-February, early March storms, and then on into April, and that can be a game changer. What are what are you guys' thoughts on that as far as antler development? Yeah, Jay, this is um, – I would say I totally agree with that. Um I prefer definitely the mild winters, especially like we're having this year. Um, and uh, definitely the moisture on timing is a huge deal. We don't always have to have that record amount of uh, moisture for the horn growth to be great. Um, but, you know, timing is everything. And it seems like, you know, we had a real mild winter, but it was wet. And now if we can just get a few more storms, you know, over the next couple of months, I think we'll be golden. Yeah. Agreed. It's, it's, do you, do you, go ahead. Yeah, there, I was just going to say, you know, there's some really good green up happening right now. Uh, and in the lower current country, it's been happening over the last month. Um, and, and, and like Jay said, these mild winters, you know, Arizona is generally mild, um, you know, compared to some of our northern states. Utah and Colorado and whatnot, but but when it's as mild as it has been, I mean, it's been almost 60 degrees up in Flag. I think we had one of the warmest Februarys on record. Um, just looking out at the bulls we've been looking at, uh, their bodies just look awesome. I mean, you know how, Jay, you know how they get at the end of winter where they're just super scraggly and yeah. they kind of look at, drawn down, drawn down yeah. emaciated from the rut a little bit. I mean, I got to tell you, the, the bodies on the bulls right now, I mean, they look very, fat very and sassy. They do. They look fat and sassy. And, um, you know, I think that could alone, you know, even, even if we didn't get any, you know, banner storms, let's just say we got some average precipitation from here on out. I mean, it, it, it makes me feel good to hear that you're saying that the, the, the uh, bulls are fleshy and, and feeling good because, and Matt, you can weigh in on this too. Um, you know, it's no doubt that they've got to get their bodies in good condition before the nutrition will pour into their antlers. If they go into the growing season with their body already doing well, they can pour it straight into the antlers. I agree. That, that's hundred percent. And, and as it pertains to the mule deer, um, I think it's, I think it's split about 50, 50 as far as, as the, I think the antler growth runs, you know, four, five, six months behind what the habitat conditions were. Um, so like the deer in northern Arizona that, you know, the tremendous monsoon season that we've been having, fortunate enough to have the last couple few years, um, and namely this last one that was just unbelievable. I mean, just all the water you could ever hope, ever hope for, you know, all the tanks are full, but you know, the feed is just just lush and, and vibrant and the grass is, is knee deep and, and when the when the habitat as a whole is in that good a condition, the animals bounce out of the rut. You know, they come out of the rut and re- recover from it quick. Um like the deer that rut in November, December, you know, they draw themselves down during the rut. But the feed is so healthy still that they bounce out of the rut and like you say, it's all about the body condition. If they 
if when they shed their antlers and start growing new ones, if their bodies are not in catch-up mode, then then their antlers explode. If their bodies are behind, or if they don't, if it doesn't grow the feed that the, the year prior, and you have a you know a mild or a below average winter, and even if you do get a spring green up, even if you have a tremendous spring, um, there can be you know there can be a number of months there where those animals are are uh, like you say they're fleshing their bodies back out, they're getting their bodies, their antlers will be growing, but a lot of the you know, a lot of their intake is going to stouting their bodies back up. And when they don't have to do that, when they can shed their antlers and start regrowing with a healthy body already, those are the years when things just, uh, you know, granted you get, you know, the, the timely storms that you need, need going forward. But I think it's kind of 50, 50, especially with the deer. Um, sure. If they're healthy when they shed, I think that's means a lot. So would the consensus be on the elk, uh, a positive outlook on the elk uh, if we continue to get storms good? And then I hear you saying, Matt, that uh, with our monsoons that may have been too late to really affect deer antler growth or elk antler growth, it's still putting feet on the ground. They're going into the winter in good condition. It was a fairly mild winter. It, they've been getting storms out there on the strip. So from a on a 2015 deer forecast as well, you're you're very optimistic. I am very very optimistic for the 2015 deer season. Um, just based on you know we've we've paid tremendous attention to the antler growth and you know have plot and schemed and <laughs> come up with all our own opinions on what what grows antlers and uh, all, all signs in my opinion at least point to um, a fantastic year on the strip. I think it's uh, I think the deer is a little bit more already locked in than, than maybe the bulls would be. Um, in my opinion, I think that I think that with the moisture that we had last summer and what we've already had this year, um, I think a lot of those bucks are already locked in. They're going to have a fantastic year as far as antler growth goes. That's awesome, um, guys. Talking about um, you know, A3 trophy hunts, um, back to the elk. Uh, do you, is there any units that you don't guide elk hunters in? Let's start there. And then, you know, give me your, you know, top five. Obviously, you know, 9, 10, uh, 23s, uh, 27, unit one. I mean, tell me kind of, uh, you know, if there's units you don't guide in and then tell me kind of what's your top five units and they don't have to be in order, just, you know, what you like about each unit and what you're seeing for this year. Sure. Um, so to answer your first question, Jay, we, we guide statewide. Um, we have no problem guiding a 5B or 4A, 4B, whatever it may, clients. Uh, we enjoy those hunts as well, you know, with an understanding that they typically don't produce the, the caliber of animals of some of these other units, but nonetheless, there's some good elk hunting to be had. Um, you know, as far as our, our favorite units to be in, it's, you know, I might get beat with a stick for answering it the way I'd answer it, but it's, it's whatever one gets the most moisture and has the best inventory of age class of bulls, <laughs> you know, right, yeah. we, we all know that, uh, there's big bulls in every unit in the state. Um, you know, there's, there's some, some units that are very popular for big bulls, and then there's units that are not popular for big bulls. But on on normal moisture years, I, I think you can look at unit nine. Uh, 
what do I, what do we like about the unit nine hunt? We like that there's no archery cow hunts at the same time. You know, for those who draw the archery tag, uh, we know that this this year they moved the muzzleloader hunt uh, in front of the archery hunt, and I, I suspect some some great bulls will be taken on that. Uh, with that being said, I think the archery hunt is going to be uh, off the charts in unit nine this year, uh, especially with the moisture the way they are. Um, unit ten is a unit that is, in my opinion, it's kind of a feast or famine type unit. Uh, but it's very easy to get drawn to that to that unit when you see good moisture. Um, the genetics in Unit 10, Jay, you know this, they're second to none yeah. um, to grow huge bulls. You know, big bean bulls, big top ends, uh, big frames. You see a lot of that in, in Unit 10. Um, 23, uh, and that and that's north and south. You you've got to put those on the list. Sure. Um, huge bulls there. Uh, I think you know several years ago, if you remember, the game and fish went to this two two late elk hunts in unit twenty two, and then I think they did it for a year, if not two or three, in unit twenty three. Um, and and it was and it started struggling. Um, since they've uh, eliminated that second late bull hunt, uh, you know. And cut back on tags, back down to 200. There's really been an increase in quality animals there. And then, and then the White Mountains, Unit One, 27, uh, phenomenal units for elk. And and you know the beauty of those units, uh, there's a lot more natural water, if you will, in those units. You know, there's more springs and seeps and creeks and things like that. Where whereas in northern Arizona, uh, we don't see much of that. So. It's not as susceptible to the impacts of the drought, you know, which can be a concern to people putting in who don't want to run the risk of, you know, burning a 10 or 15, 20 years of points on a on a tag and having to worry about, you know, bulls that might be 20 or 30 inches off what they should be. But uh, there's big bulls in all those units, you know, and uh, I would suspect that statewide there's going to be some some really good elk taken this year. That's awesome. I, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about your um, trail cameras. I know that uh, both with deer and with elk, uh, you run a lot of trail cameras. And I know that uh, Jay and Chad, specifically on elk, for years and years and years, um, even back when trail cameras kind of first came out, I know you guys have an incredible amount of inventory of watching bulls uh, year after year. And, uh, I want to talk to you about maybe some specific bulls, uh, that either you killed or that, you know, got killed and give me some age. Uh, and I, I know it's variable and I know you can't pin exactly, but you know, are there some bulls that, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old? I mean, what's some of the oldest bulls that you, you actually have photographs of, so you could say, I know that bull is, you know, however old. Do you have any examples well, of that? Well, Jay, I could tell you of a really good bull that's pretty well known um, out of Unit 9, um, which uh, we called Rhino. And you guys killed that bull, right? Hammer, yes. Is that Hammer? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's, that was that's a, a great example. Tell me about it. Well, that bull, um, I believe the first year we got a picture of him was in... I believe 06. It was 2005. Was it five? Okay. Yeah. It was 2005. 
And uh, we harvested him in, who oh gosh, I can't remember what year it was. I think uh, 13. Was it 2012 or 13? 12, 12, I think, guys, because I think I was up there. Mm-hmm. And that was the last year I was in uh, nine – or no, it was 13. It was it 13. Was 13. You're exactly right. Yep. Yep. And, you know, yep. uh, we we uh, we killed that bull, and and his uh, – Jim's dad had harvested another really uh, popular bull from that unit the year before. And both bulls, it seemed like year after year, we kept saying – Gosh, when, I mean, they from the very first time we saw them, they were big. All the way back, you know, 2005, 2006, um, they were at that 390-plus mark. And uh, the bull that uh, Jim Sr. killed in uh, 2012, that bull, um, he I don't know if he was hit or... Something happened to his body, but he went through about three years where he, I would say he dropped down to the 360 mark. I mean, he, I would say at least 30, 40 inches down. And, uh, but when we harvested him, um, I think they scored him at 396. And, uh, and that bull and the bull we called Rhino that we killed in 2013, both those bulls, um, I sent the jaws off, and both of them are 18 plus years old. Oh wow. my goodness, that is unbelievable! And, that, and I think that—I mean, I thought that was unheard of. And and it just—I guess it goes to show, you know, um, some of these units that border uh, parks or reservations, um, they can produce some really old animals. Absolutely. Uh, so you obviously you must have cut the jaw off and sent sent off some samples and such, Jay. Yes, I did. Yeah, eighteen. So so in '05, it, it harvested in thirteen. So that's eight years. And if he was already three ninety something in '05, I mean, I mean, it would make sense that he was a seven, eight, nine year old bull. I mean, he, it's it's feasible that a bull could be that big at what five years old. Yeah. Yes, I I, yeah. I killed a bull in uh, 3C a long time ago, back when I first met you, and uh, a 370 bull, and uh, he was four and a half. Yeah. So yeah. that that that's Arizona genetics for you. Yep. Um So a lot of these bulls, um, I mean, you're watching them year after year, regardless of size. You're seeing some bulls on your cameras, seven, eight, nine. 10 years and and still it's the same bull yes absolutely yeah how often guys and matt you weigh on this uh on the on the deer stuff uh how often you know i don't run trail cameras personally um so i don't have the vast knowledge you guys have as far as the inventory of stuff how often do you see those non-typicals throw the trash from side to side or, you know, one year they'll fork fifth and a fork second and then the next year it'll throw it over to the other side? I know back probably 02, 03, I guess, uh, it's, it's going back, maybe 02. In 3C, I had that one bull and I think Rusty Palmer ended up uh, harvesting the next year and he threw his trash from one side to the other. I'm curious... Um, on your bucks and on your bulls, what's your? Do you notice those non-typicals throw that stuff side to side? 
Definitely. On the bull, on the bulls, they do it all the time. As do the bucks. You know, we see it on the mule deer bucks as well. They uh, they'll do it with droppers. You know, splits, uh, inlines, cheaters. For what reason, I have no clue. But there, there will, there is multiple examples over the years of bucks that uh, that yeah that trade sides with with uh, you know very specific extra points. It's you know why they do it. I have no clue, but it, they definitely do it. Do you guys see um, bucks with drop, actual drop tines on one side, and then maybe the next year he won't have a drop tine at all? Like it, the drop tine will be gone. Yeah, we do. Um, and that can definitely happen on drought years, um, and not only drops, but but you know that's what. Well, that's one of the things that suffers the most um, in northern Arizona on drought years with the with the big bucks is is uh, yeah they'll they'll they won't grow as much extra points as they do on on a year when they're when they're healthy. So you know we've seen bucks that had multiple extra points on both sides. You know drought down to a three by four you know he might be you know he might be wide he might still have a little mass but we'll virtually lose all of his extras he'll still blade and have you know you can look at the rack and tell where the extra should be but they're not there and then the next year turn around on a better on a better moisture year and regrow it all right back so it's it's uh you see all all sort of variations very interesting. Uh, guys, on that same kind of topic, uh, with with all the trail cameras that you run, how often, now let's just talk elk for right now, how often do you get pictures of bulls that obviously you recognize? How much are they moving, uh, let's say, during the summer, let's say, you know, before they drop their antlers? At what period are they moving the most other than the rut? And at what period do they become very, very habitual on, on the elk? You know, Jay, on the elk, in 2008, um, we went with Randy Ulmer up in Unit 9. And uh, he killed a great bull right at the end of the hunt and uh, 387. He, uh, the bull he killed, we had watched for years. We actually had a shed off him and, and whatnot. But his bull... Uh, moved 26 miles as the crow flies. Goodness. Um, you know, all the way from the north. Like to... out of units, like changing units no. type of movement. Well, no, okay. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he almost did. Uh, we killed a bull in unit 10 in 2010, I believe, that moved 24 miles. Um, we've killed bulls that we've watched summering in unit 10. We've killed them in unit nine. Um, you know, to say how far these bulls will move, you know, it is, we've seen them stay right there or they can move 20, 25, even 30 miles. Um, we've seen bulls in 23, you know, in a matter of a few days, move 16 miles through some of the roughest country Arizona has to offer. So, you know, there, it's a chore to keep up with them. Um, at what point can we start, you know, can you get comfortable that a bull is in a place where you can hunt him? I think, you know, when you start seeing bulls cow up, um, and if there's not too much pressure, uh, I think you could expect him to, you know, to stay in the same area as long as the cows are cycling and he can stay active there. Um, and then on the late hunts, you know, there's some, 
there's some pockets uh, that once they get there, you know, you you should throw a blanket over them, couldn't you? You could, but this, in Arizona, one thing we experience is when they get there, and yeah. and I think the weather dictates a lot of that. You know, even though we don't have the three foot of snow and they can't, you know, they don't want to stay in it and they need to migrate. A lot of it's just temperature related, I think, where they, you know, for whatever reason, or or, or the rut gets drawn out into October. You know, you get that second cycle. And they want to hang around for that a little bit longer and then, you know, hang out for a couple of weeks before they finally decide to make that move to the, you know, to their win to where they like to hang out in the winter. And uh, I don't think it's a question of bulls going to the same spot year after year as much as it is a timing thing. And, sure. and you just hope that they, you know, that they, they get in a huntable place before the season starts. Yeah, absolutely. If it, and Matt, I'll get to the deer in a second, but staying with the elk guys uh, from from your patterns and all your watching, when is the big move day? I mean, I have my idea when the big move day is, uh, you know, prior to the elk rut. If you had to pin down a seven day window, when is the when is moving day for those elk to go from velvet stage to, you know, that they're rubbed? And now they're moving. When is that seven-day window? Um, you know, we've seen bulls rub. So, so you know, depending on the size of bulls typically but a lot, and, and what part of the state they're in, you know, some bulls will rub that first week in August. But I would say as a norm, you could expect anywhere from about the 12th to the 18th of August the bulls will rub. And then once they rub, like you said, Jay, it'll be a day or two. Uh, maybe three and then that if they're moving they're going to be on the move and that period from about the you know the 20th to uh, basically september one you know it's a chess match out there you know there's <laughs> they could there's, go any direction <laughs> there's bulls all over the place i mean that bull we killed in unit 10 that moved over 20 miles he he walked through hundreds of cows and why he chose to go where he wanted to go i i, I don't know Sometimes I think these things are as bad as salmon, you know, where they go back to where they were were calved almost. I I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that I I couldn't agree with you more. I I find that you know August twentieth to you know September fifth, you know, in there. I mean, it's anyone's guess they could be moving. I you know. I usually get up there about September first and start really glassing, and you know, it's it's. As you guys know, it's real common to just see bulls just on a walk, and you know there's walk and they walk to the horizon. You yeah, know, it's it's, it's um, mind-boggling, but um, I think that's good for our listeners to hear that you know they can be pattering a bull all summer and think they've got them, and maybe the worst place to look for that bull is right where you've been watching them all summer. But are there cases where you have them all summer and boom, they're right there and they they don't move at all during the rut, or is it more common that they move? Um, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know what the right answer would be, but, you know, we've taken a lot of bulls that have stayed right there. And we've also taken bulls that have moved a long ways. And, you know, it seems like the, the units where there's more elk, uh, they can, they'll almost stay, at least their, their window is not as big. You know, their area that they're roaming in, it seems like it may be not quite as big whereas you get some of these bigger vast units you know with with high bull to cow ratios and you know those suckers will move move immensely and a lot of it is jay uh 
you know, there's certain pockets and anyone who spends a lot of time out there knows this, you know, a buck hole or a bull hole, we like to call them, where bulls just like to summer. And you're not going to go find a lot of cows there in the summer. You know, every, everything you see is going to be bulls. So, you know, it's pretty much understood that most of those bulls are going to pull out of there. You yeah. know. Yeah. Matt, what about on the deer as far as travel and have you documented uh, bucks that, you know, tell, tell me your your thoughts. Yeah, you know, in the, in the non-migratory units, um, I think the bucks as a whole move less than bulls do. Um, and I, and I've also learned that each one is really an individual. Um, you know, multiple bucks that we have followed and harvested through the years have, you know, have lived, you know, have, have grown their antlers and rubbed and rutted and shed in the same, you know, canyon or on the same mesa or the same flat, um, using the same water source, you know, 365 days a year, um, for multiple years on end. Um, you know, there is the oddball buck that does, that does travel. There's been a few bucks over the years that, you know, that got killed eight, 10, 12 miles from where they summered. Um, it's by no means is it the norm. In my opinion, I think that the deer are, uh, a little, a little more, you know, a little more homebound than these bulls are. They, uh, they kind of live where they live, but there is always the oddball that, you know, that, that does crop up every few years. It's like, you know, you see a kill picture of it or, or, you know, it's like, holy moly, we saw that buck, you know, in August, you know, way over here, 10 miles away. So it does happen, but it's, it's not normal. I think it's, yeah. you know, they do walk when they rut, obviously. Um, and they do cover more country than when they're not rutting. But, uh, but as a whole, they still stick to the same, you know, not necessarily the same tight little core area, but but they don't pick up and walk 25 miles across the unit like Jay and Chad are talking about. Um, that sure. would be very sure. abnormal. Um, in the non-migratory units, you know, the tie-dab units and whatnot, those deer, you know, on a typical year migrate off the mountain. And so where they summer to where they rut is uh, is more migratory move than anything. But uh, and, and just to clarify, Matt, uh, 13A and B are what you would consider uh, non-migratory, and and uh, 12A and 12B would be more migratory units, and like the Ponsagant in Utah, right. ob- obviously migratory, correct? Right, right. As far okay. as as far as a true migration, um, you know, in 13A and B, there's you know there's many migrations, I guess, where. Um, you know, they'll summer on top of the mountain and then walk to the bottom of the mountain when it gets colder, it snows, but they're not, they're not a true migration like you see on the Kayabab or, or coming out of the Pontagon into Arizona. Um, sure. So yeah, I would call them non-migratory for the most part. Sure. You know, I think, uh, that's all great information, um, for the listener out there to, to, um, take in from these guys that, uh, monitor these animals all the time. Uh, guys, we could talk about this for days and there's all sorts of little micro topics. I, I want to move on a little bit into, um, the kind of gear that each of you use, you know, um, starting with tripods, optics, you know, big binoculars, uh, around your neck binoculars, 
um, you know, backpacks, video cameras. What are you digiscoping with? Uh, trail cameras you like the best. Um, you know, do you have side-by-sides, UTVs you like, tires, GPS, topo programs? If you could each take, you know, a few minutes and kind of run through uh, the gear you use, if you can be specific with me and tell me, you know, pretty much around my neck all the time I have this and, and kind of go through your series of what you use. Uh, either one of you can start uh, first. Right. Okay. I can uh, I can start. Um, I use a slick carbon fiber tripod. It uh, it's proved to be uh, I like the best of all that's available right now. Um, Do you know which model, Matt? Is it a standing one that you can stand behind yes, and glass sure through? Yep. Okay, that's what I that's what I use too. Um, I use Koa Big Eyes for uh, for all of our long range stuff. Um, you know, high elevation, long long range glassing around my neck. I carry a pair. of Zeiss 10 by 45s with a with a rangefinder in them. Um, I've had them for oh three or four years now. In my opinion, they're they are the uh, albeit I haven't tried some of the latest uh, latest ones that are on the market now because I've been more than happy with these. But as far as the glass and the functionality of the rangefinder, it's second to none. Um, backpacks. I uh, I move around a lot with backpacks. I I believe in and trying them all. I have used pretty much every backpack on the market at some point in time. Um, Everly Stock, Outdoorsman's. Currently, I'm using a 2U backpack. Um, I like it really well. It seems to... Uh, which one, which KUYU one do you have, Matt? Do you know it, how big? It is the 5200 Icon, I believe. Okay, okay. And um, you said also the Outdoorsman's pack you've used and the Everly Stock? I have. Among, okay, yes. okay. Um... Oh, let's see here. Trail cameras. We've uh, we've used again. We've used about every trail camera that uh, that there is. Um, in recent years, we've used a lot of coverts. More recently, we have uh, been very impressed with the stealth cams and uh, and how they're working in the battery life and the quality of the pictures. Um, I think we'll be using a lot more of them in the in the near future. Um, I carry I carry a, a fairly basic Sony HD Handycam. It uh, it takes phenomenal video for my application, um, as well as the Times Up system that we use on our on our big eyes to film through. I uh, I'm a firm believer in in Honda ATVs. There is a, you could you could drive them off a cliff and pick them up the bottom and get back on them and ride them another 10,000 miles. And everyone I've ever owned has been that way. I've heard um, multiple stories where guys actually have done that. They roll them all the way to the bottom and they go down there and the gas isn't even spilled or nothing and they turn them over and they start them right back up. They're unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They're unbelievable. I've put over 30,000 miles on multiple different Honda, Honda quads over the years and, uh, you know, short of changing the oil and changing the spark plugs, they'll start and run at 30,000 miles, just like they did at, at the first mile. They're incredible machines. Um, I recently, recently purchased a, a, a side-by-side or a UTV made by Can-Am. I don't have a lot of miles on it so far. So far it's been, I love it. Um, 
and it's a much more comfortable ride for not only me but for our clients. Um, tires. I uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of the same way with tires that I am with backpacks. I uh, as we all do, um, you know, we chew up tires, a lot of tires, and uh, so I've kind of rotated through about every tire out there. I have uh, I have uh, Mickey Thompsons have been have been what I've used most recently with with good luck. And when I say good luck, I mean uh, getting the most mileage out of them, um, not chunking out as bad on on rocky roads. Uh, basically, just looking for you know the most bang for my buck because we are going to destroy lock and off tires. So, but overall, they're all you know there's no drastic difference between any of them at least for me i mean we just destroy tires it's a part of what we do and and i'll forever be searching for the one that i can put on and go for you know 50 60,000 miles but it's not going to happen um gps i've used garmin gps's since i bought my first gps i uh it's you know garmin has done everything i've ever wanted it to do um, since the first one I bought, so I don't intend to change that anytime soon until somebody uh, until somebody shows me one that uh, that's better. Um, topo map programs. I uh, I use the National Geographic topo map map programs as well as Google Earth, but uh, you know the National Geographic topos are one twenty four thousand ratio that are the exact topo map that you would buy back in the day when we used to buy paper maps, um, you know, it shows all the, all the roads, springs, you know, dirt tanks, canyon names, you know, they're just very thorough. Um, they don't miss a lot is and some of these other map programs definitely do, uh, miss a lot. So I, uh, yeah, kind of a general rundown of what I use. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what are you guys using, Jay and Chad? I'll let Chad tell you because pretty much everything we use is almost exactly the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I think Jay, between Jay and I and Matt, we own every pair of uh, high-end binoculars made known to man. Um, but lately, Jay, we're—I uh, own a pair of the, you know, I have 15s, the new Swaro HD 15s, the. Uh, the Leicas we really like, the Leica range finding binos, the, the HDB, you know, with the button on the right-hand side. Um, yeah. Those have been really nice. Uh, Jay and I both have those. Um, we both have Swarovski spotting scopes. We use, I think I ran into you in Unit 9 a few years ago, and you asked me which tripod I was using, and it was a uh, Calame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You still running that? Yeah, I like their uh, carbon fiber tripod there. It's been really good. It, it's, it's durable. If I remember right, it has thicker legs. They're they're actually a thin walled leg, but if the diameter is fairly yes. fairly stout, but it's a real lightweight. Yeah, yes. it felt like a r- real nice tripod. Yeah, it is. It's it's been really good over the years. Um, it's it's held up to what the. What head are you using? Um, so there's a couple different ones. I don't think you can get them anymore, but the the 701 HDV by Manfrotto. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, That's the one Dar uses. Yeah. We really like those. Um, I think, you know, as well as the outdoorsman, it just depends on the application. If you're going to be filming and whatnot, these larger base, you know, these heads that can handle the larger plates for a base are much better. Um, packs. 
outdoorsman's. Um, again, I think I have every pack, just about every type of pack out there. Um, you know, we all have big eyes as well as our guides. Almost all of our guides carry the big colas, you know, the HDs. Um, and one thing with those, and I don't know if you've ever tried them, Jay, but if you've ever looked through those 21 eyepieces, they are amazing. Um, the the 21 wides. Um, yeah, the 21 wide I like angles. those. I don't like the 50 eyepiece. Uh, I like the 32 and I like the 21s. Yep. Um, do you use the 21s uh, more than the 32s or do you use the 32s more? I So I don't use the 50s. I'm with you. I don't. The 50s are okay, but I think the 32s and 21s are great. It seems like I use the the 21s more on coos deer hunts when uh, we're really looking generally closer because we're hunting a very specific area. Um, I really like the look the 21s give you. But uh, so yeah, those are the the binos and optics, different optics we use. We we both have Canon cameras, you know. HF20s, I think they are. They're older, but they take nice video, mm-hmm. um, nice HD video. Um, I, I, I'm I shooting the the first Canon, the, the, uh, I think it's the G10, and then there was the G20, and now they have a G30, I guess, that has a 20-power optical, but it's got a doubler, not, not a screw-in doubler, but an internal doubler uh, that kicks it out to 40 optical, which... I don't know if you guys have seen that, but I was talking to someone and they they really like that new uh, G30. So I'm thinking of upgrading to that G30. Uh, We probably all will be here pretty soon now. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't even heard of that, but just hearing about that, I mean, gosh, you know. I guess there's an internal um, just button on the function menu on the screen that all you do is hit it, and it's 40 opt. It goes from 20 optical to 40 optical. And I think one of the problems with my G10 is, you know, it's only a 10 power optical zoom. And, you know, while it takes incredible uh, video, uh, there's a lot of times on deer hunts and sheep hunts and stuff where I'm definitely lacking in zoom. But, yeah, I guess we'll all have to look into that G30. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, I I appreciate that because I hadn't even heard of that. So, well, yeah, we'll probably be carrying a new uh, field this year. Um, you know, we all have just four wheelers, Polaris and whatnot, you know, and Rangers, a couple side by sides. And then, you know, we all use the same stuff for topos and the files that we have. Uh Are are you finding any tires, um, Chad, that, uh, on your UTV that are holding up more than, more than others, or are they all pretty much the same with your use? Um, I haven't noticed a change personally. I know, uh, I know Jay, Jay, weren't you talking about some there that, yeah, you know, I wished I, I wished I had the name of them. Um, I don't have them here at the house and, uh, but we had gone, we had gone through quite a few different ones and, uh, these last ones, I mean, we're, um, a couple of my ranch buddies and stuff that, are on them every day. I switch them over to them, and they they love them. I'll have to. I'll get you the name, Jay, and you yeah, can that'd maybe be great. Put it out on one of your other uh, podcasts. I um I ran into some Sedona Ripsaw, um the Sedona Ripsaw tire, and darn, I both are running those on our Rangers, and 
been real happy with those. So I'm curious to see if there's something out there that's better. But um, that's kind of the best that that I found um, about oh a year and a half ago. I've been pretty happy with them. Are they belted? So, you know, I I I don't think they are belted, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh-huh. Um, Sedona Ripsaw, you can get them pretty much at any um, UTV tire store. Um, I think they're a ten ply, but they they just seem to be very durable. We've actually I had them down Gould's turkey hunting. I had them last year coos deer season in Mexico and this year coos deer season and still have yet to get a flat. Of course, I'll probably go out there tomorrow and all four tires will be flat, but um been been pretty happy with them. Um guys, we the the four of us can talk probably till um the sun, you know, till uh, the sun comes up tomorrow morning. I know you guys all have families and uh I I I want to kind of close on um when when you're um, looking at bull elk, and I want you guys to kind of all answer this, um, as far as field judging, what are some tips that you can that you can give uh, that you're looking for in say a bull that's uh, you know 350? Um, you know what are you looking for? What's the most important things you know you're looking for when you're when you're trying to field judge a bull and say that. We're talking bulls over 350. What What's your ingredient there? Uh, I would say, you know, when you're looking at something, I'll go, I'll go with like, say, 370 plus. Okay. Is, uh, like on, especially on like a typical six-pointer, um, a real quick way to do it is just take that you have 50-inch beams, 40 inches wide, uh, 100 inches in uh, mass and spread, and uh, and every tine is 20 inches. You got a 400 inch bull. So now you just so you're just you're taking the 200 and then and then add each point and you know add the five points and double it. That's what you're saying. Yeah, okay? and, and just and then just take you know each tine and do a subtraction. Um, if you think he has 18 inch fronts, you know, you just start subtracting. Okay, good tip. Good tip. And Jay, are you more? Do you want a bull? If you're looking for bulls that are scoring, uh, do you feel like is there one ingredient that's more important than the others as far as you know point length, main beam, you know spread, mass? What's what's what do you look for as being the most important? You know, I'll tell you the thing that hides a lot of the big bulls that will when you put a tape on them that really surprises you every time is probably beams and spread those are the things that i mean even though you see it in the spread um it adds a lot of inches to a bull and uh i mean lot in arizona has a lot of bulls that have those sweeping out beams where you know we get sometimes we get a lot of extra spread that way and uh so what you're saying is like you know taking your average of 40 inches you could not really be paying attention, and he's 47 wide, and you get seven extra inches there without even really blinking. Yep, yep. And then you have your 50-inch beams, and then say you kill, uh, like I'll talk about unit 10. 10's known for big beam bulls. And say you have 57-inch beams. Well, there's 14 inches already. You've got your 14 inches plus your 7 inches. And, uh, I mean, you got a lot bigger bull just on those two things. Gotcha. 
Uh, Chad, can you throw anything in there? What you look for in in when you're trying to look for big bulls? What's your most important ingredient? I, I think there's a couple things, but the first thing that comes to mind is it's it's just like sheep, Jay, and you know this is history. You know what have, what what do the genetics in the area typically produce? Um, it's very common, you know, like Jay was saying, in units nine and ten to shoot big big bean bulls. You know on the western side of the state, you know, we, we measure, because it's a learning curve, all the bulls we kill, I love to put a tape on them, and very rare is it that we kill a bull with over 53-inch beams in the White Mountains, for whatever reason, Not, and there are a few big beam bulls there, um, but a lot of the, even the, the giant bull Mike Gallo killed years ago, that bull had sub-50-inch beam on one side, and I think yeah. 51 on the other, and, and you know, so first is genetics, you know, what's typical. And then the other thing that that can really be a game changer is mass. Uh, a lot of inches can be hidden with mass. Um, and and that's one that, you know, you just got to, it's one of those things you just recognize when you see it. Um, and, the, and then the last thing is it's always good to see a bull that you're looking at standing with other uh, mature bulls. You know, a lot of the larger bulls we've, killed jay we we have history with them we have their sheds um or else you know something to that effect and so makes it a a little easier when you're trying to put a a number to them so absolutely those are that's great stuff there chad um matt you have anything to add to that on the on the elk what you're looking for in a big elk you know those guys those guys pretty much summed it up um yeah you know, it's, uh, I can say that, uh, as far as elk go, I mean, there's, in the deer too, I mean, if any, if something's going to score really, really, really well, it's got to have time length somewhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. you know, you don't kill a lot of 400 inch bulls with, with 14 inch tines. Um, you know, so, so just touching on something that those guys didn't touch on, um, you know, yeah big curling fronts and, and big thirds and, and big force, um, you know, obvious stuff that, uh, that goes into it with the deer. Um, you know, once we find a buck that's, that's definitely got our attention, if it's not a buck that we have, that we have, that we have history with and we know how old he is and we, you know, might have a shed and we know, you know, we got a really good history with him. So we know how big he is. If we, you know, encounter a new buck, scouting or hunting, whatever, um, you know, the very first thing that, that I pay attention to once he's got our attention is, uh, is his body size. Um, sure. You know, the, 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 the mistakes I've made in the past in my guiding career, as far as over judging animals, every one of them has been attributed to a smaller body than what I expected. And, you know, yeah, I mean, burn. if you're looking at, if you're looking at a deer mat, that's got, you know, 20, three inches tip to tip and all of a sudden there's another deer that's 25 26 27 inches tip to tip i mean that can make a huge difference can it it can make an enormous difference and yeah you know you can take a you know you can take a 190 inch set of antlers and put it on a on a 280 or a 300 pound deer and it looks it looks one way you take that 190 inch set of antlers and put it on a you know, a 175 pound or 180 inch desert deer, and it looks like a new world record. So, and it's this exact same set of antlers. So, um, 
you know, body size can uh, can really play a huge part, especially in mule deer judging. Um, you know, so that's one of the that's one of the first things that I try to. If it's an unknown buck and I don't know what it is, um, I want to know how big his body is, especially if we're hunting and we're thinking about killing this buck. I want to, you know, if he's with other deer, that makes it a lot easier. If he's with does or with other bucks, that makes it a lot easier. If he's alone, um, it gets tougher. You know, you can yeah. you can look for for uh, you know a different body shape. They're just like humans. You know a a big yeah. You've got Shaquille O'Neal and yeah, right. A big you know mature beefy buck will have a deep thick chest and and oftentimes a sway back, a thick shoulders, a big head. You know, versus a younger deer that's immature that uh, you know just is sleeker all around, looks younger, and you know so body size is. It's huge for me, mainly because uh, the mistakes I've made in the past have been because of body size. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point, Matt, uh, that you make. In, in any species, I think when you're judging, you know, body body size means everything. And well, guys, this has been an awesome time uh, spending here with you and and uh, you know getting to share stuff back and forth. And I uh, uh, just want to say hats off to you guys for the success that you've had, and I uh, look forward to talking with you again. Maybe we can do another update uh, here midsummer and just see how everything's going. And uh, why don't you guys tell me how uh, the listeners can find you guys, uh, your website, uh, Facebook, or whatever whatever you guys are using? Uh, can you? Uh, I follow you guys on Instagram and love seeing all the big pictures. Uh, give me give me your places where we can uh, the listeners can find you yeah jay you can we have a website and that's uh, a3trophyhunts.com um we also we're on facebook at a3 trophy hunts and then on instagram uh, at a3 trophy hunts those are really our uh, our platforms that we used and uh that's that's where we're at awesome if we're not and, out in the uh, field that's where we are <laughs> <laughs> well, here pretty soon, it's going to be hard to get a hold of any of you guys, and I uh, uh, just uh, wish you the best, and I'm uh, thankful to get all of you guys on at the same time, and I uh, just uh, want to say thanks, and uh, hope you guys have a great season, and I know you're looking forward to the results coming out here soon, uh, and uh, you guys do a terrific job, and I'm proud of you, and uh, keep up the good work, okay? Thank you very much, Jay. Thanks, Thanks Jay. Very Thanks for having us, Jay. What a great show with A3 Trophy Hunts. I want to thank those guys for coming on. I want to thank you, our listeners, uh, for tuning in and supporting us. And, uh, you know, thank you for the reviews on iTunes. If you haven't already gone on to iTunes and given us a five-star review, five-star rating, and uh, you can put some comments there. It sure helps us out with iTunes. I just want to thank you guys for listening and spending your day, spending your time with us. And uh, we look forward to the next episode. You can follow along at jscottoutdoors.com. People have been asking about our YouTube channel. We do have a YouTube channel. We have over a million views on YouTube. Uh, We have, I believe, 1,250 subscribers. Uh, If you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, you can go to jscottoutdoors.com on YouTube and uh, subscribe there. We've got a lot of great hunting videos, uh, how-to, uh, a lot of different great stuff there. Uh, also, Jay Scott Outdoors Facebook page, and you can follow uh, on Instagram at 
J. Scott Outdoors and my associate Dar Colburn, Dar Colburn, D-A-R-R Colburn, C-O-L-B-U-R-N. Follow us there on Instagram and uh, we just want to thank you guys for being with us and until next time, God bless.